Welcome to the Millennial Therapist Podcast with Mao and Nao. This podcast is hosted by two millennial therapists who are true crime, forensic psychology, and macabre obsessed. This is not your typical mental health podcast where only mental health and social work topics are discussed. We dabble in various topics from cultural humility to military mental health to ghosts to interesting ways our parents use the paranormal to discipline us. Ed Kukui, anyone? <laughs> Why so many topics? Because we're millennials. To make things more interesting, one is an Air Force veteran and a mom of two, the other is currently serving active duty, and both are children of immigrants working to honor their ancestors. What's up, homies? If you didn't know, this is Millennial Therapist, or MTP, with Mao and Nao, your favorite millennial therapist, weirdos, queens of the dark abyss. This is Mao, and that's Nao. And this is season two of True Crime, Forensic Psychology, Cult, Ghosts, and Nostalgia. This week's topic was suggested by one of our podcast listeners, Cece, who works in the legal profession. So, hey, Cece, thank you for the suggestion. See that? You get a shout out for writing to us. Anywho, they wrote in and said, Hi, Mao and Nao. I love your podcast and listen to every episode. I was wondering if you might be interested in talking about the phenomenon of planted memories. I know I and others have spoken to experienced situations where you're convinced that you remember something but later realize it's not a true memory. For example, I have a vivid memory of writing an angry letter in my diary. Many of us have done that when I was a child, maybe 11 or so. And I ripped it out of my notebook and ripped up the letter and threw it away. Few years ago, I found out that my mom had kept that letter. I saw the letter intact over a decade after I was so sure that I tore it up. And I know planted memories have a real significance in the psychiatric field where there's controversy about repressed, recovered, and planted memories. I would love to hear more about this if you're interested. Best, CC. In a subsequent email, they wrote, I've been thinking about this in the context of sexual abuse repressed memory cases because state courts are still trying to navigate the scientific evidence on this and properly assessing the reliability of witness memory. So thank you. That was an amazing idea. I always wanted to touch base on it, but I didn't know when. So this just kind of really sparked that. So you guessed it. This episode, we're going to talk about the satanic panic in child abuse fiasco of the 1980s, 1990s. Content trigger warning. There'll be discussions of torture, abuse, sexual child abuse, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised. If you're not interested in hearing the details, but want to hear the psychology part, the timestamp of when that begins will be in the show notes. So, Nao will be taking us into the satanic panic history. I feel like I'm going to have to hold on to something. (laughs) Alrighty, so let's dive right in. So, satanic panic was a phenomenon that swept North America and at the height of the craze, you basically couldn't open up the newspaper or turn on the news without hearing about subliminal messages hitting in rock music, pagan symbols in cartoons, or criminal trials involving teachers engaging in human sacrifice. What? (laughs) People went to jail for years based on little more than a widespread rumor that the devil's minions were corrupting and sometimes devouring children. The mass hysteria grew to include Oprah, the Smurfs, and even McDonald's. In the wake of all this paranoia came a slew of high-profile cases involving daycare workers, which were a perfect storm of paranoia about Satanism, cutting-edge psychotherapy that claimed to recover the children's repressed memories, and a gathering awareness of the problem of child sexual abuse. This was also a time where mothers and women were going to work and putting their children under the care of other people. The hysteria spread throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and even New Zealand. The early 1980s, during the implementation of uh, mandatory reporting laws, saw a large increase in child protection investigations in America, Britain, and other developed countries, along with a heightened public awareness of child abuse. The investigation of Vincent's allegations in California was also changed, with cases led by social workers who used leading and coercive interviewing techniques techniques that had been avoided by police investigators. 
Such changes in the prosecution of cases of alleged incest resulted in an increase in confessions by fathers in exchange for plea bargains. Uh, sounds very coercive. More and more, as I learn about these cases and do more research, that a lot of times people take these plea bargains to prevent being put in trial, right? Because if you're taking it, you don't go to court so, and you're already taking the punishments. These increased confessions is so that they don't get even worse punishment for something they didn't do so that's awful it wasn't a coincidence that the first daycare abuse case to receive major media attention in the united states took place 1983 concerning a preschool in manhattan beach california the mcmartin preschool where seven teachers were accused of kidnapping children flying them in an airplane to another location and forcing them to engage in group sex as well as forcing them to watch animals being tortured and killed the police sent a letter to about 200 families asking for help with their investigation the following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused this inquiry is necessary the police chief wrote describing alleged sex crimes please question your child to see if he or she has been witness to any crime or if she had been a victim they sent a letter home to these newly working parents that have young children in daycare saying hey the worst thing that you could ever imagine happened just can double check your child even though you don't have any skills and any capability like how traumatizing for both parties at the heart of this sensational story was children's institute international a child advocacy group that was responsible for interviewing kids about their traumatic experiences while their approach to interviewing the children was not intended to be coercive many of the children heard declarative statements like we know what happened, just tell us, and felt compelled to repeat or make up stories of abuse, including details of satanic worship. If they refuted allegations, they might be told they were too scared to talk. So essentially, it's leading the witness, right? The interviewer saying like, we already know, just tell us. So if they ha the kids had nothing to tell them, then they felt like they were doing something wrong. Like that is just awful. So Key McFarlane is a big key player to this. She was a social worker employed by the Children's Institute International, and she developed a new way to interrogate children with anatomically correct dolls and use them in effort to assist disclosures of abuse with the McMartin children. So if you guys, I'm sure, have seen it on TV, it's the dolls that have the parts, and you're like, show me where they hurt you or whatever. Or even if the child's like playing with it or touching it, they're like, oh, that's where they're hurt, even though they didn't tell me. You can't give a child a doll like that and then interpret all of that information. Kids are going to be curious. They're going to touch those parts. That was probably the first time they've ever seen a doll like that. So after asking the children to point to the places on the dolls where they had been allegedly touched and asking leading questions, McFarland diagnosed sexual abuse in virtually all of the McMartin children. She coerced disclosures by using lengthy interviews that rewarded discussions of abuse and punished denials. So rewarded the kids with saying that they were abused and then punished the kids that said that they, nothing happened. The trial testimony that resulted from such methods were often contradictory and vague in all details except for the assertion that the abuse had occurred. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times in 2005, one man, now an adult, reflected back on his experience with investigators as a child. So he was actually one of the McMartin preschool children. He said that he would be asked questions over and over and over again until he learned to give them the answer that they wanted. And because he had siblings at the McMartin school, he wanted them to be safe. So to a kid, he felt like he was doing the right thing by telling them what they wanted to hear. It wasn't essentially lying in, in their mind because like, oh, these adults are obviously wanting me to tell them something and then they were getting fucking cookies and candies for saying it like many of these interviewing techniques were later discredited no physical evidence was ever produced to support that the kids claims were accurate and some later admitted to lying in order to tell authorities what they wanted to hear unfortunately the mcmartin case was used as a template for all the subsequent child abuse case investigations so there's a lot of other ones we're gonna go into social workers that were involved in the mcmartin case 
were cited as experts in the case, lending them credibility so they were able to be in the course and other investigations as experts, which is like completely mind-blowing. The letter was a model of what not to do, said John Myers, a professor at the University of California, and Hastings, a lawyer who represents child victims of the abuse. The authorities also asked therapists to help interview hundreds of children. They questioned them for hours at a time, often asking leading and suggestive questions. He said, we as professionals were singularly ill-equipped. Mr. Meyer said nobody had thought about proper forensic interviews in this situation. Yeah, so essentially that was a failure on everybody's part because all of that was brand new to everybody, right? They wanted to do right by these kids so badly that they were literally hunting for any evidence to show that it was true. And it shows all around in all different professions that nobody had the proper forensic protocol or even evidence-based practices of what to do. So that was just a hot-ass mess. So the case also involved accusations that the child, the children had been forced to participate in bizarre religious rituals and then being used to make child pornography. The case began with a single accusation. So this first one was made by a mother who was later diagnosed to be paranoid schizophrenic. This parent who is mentally distressed was essentially the one that had started that particular accusation that just snowballed into this hot mess. So the case made headlines nationally during 1984 and the seven teachers were arrested, charged that year. However, when a new district attorney took over the case in 1986, his office re-examined the evidence and dismissed charges against all but two of the original defendants. The trials had become one of the longest and most expensive criminal trials in the history of the United States. Eventually in 1990, all of the charges were also dismissed. Thank goodness. The trial was met with disapproval by both its juror and academic researchers who criticized the interviewing techniques that investigators had used, alleging that the interviewers had coaxed children into making unfounded accusations, repeatedly asking children the same questions and offering various incentives until the children reported having been abused. Sociologist Mary DeYoung and historian Philip Jenkins both cited the McMartin case as a prototype for a wave of similar accusations between 1983 and 95, which really constituted the moral panic. The next one is actually that Nao is going to talk about is H. Hald Care Center in an area next to where where I lived before moving to Guam. Oh man, that's wild. Okay, so this daycare is called the Fells Acres Daycare Center, and during April 1984, Gerald. Amaral was arrested and charged with abusing children in his care at the Fells Acres Daycare Center in Malden, Massachusetts. After Amaral changed the pants on a young boy who had wet himself, the boy's mother, uncle, and therapist questioned him over the period of months until the boy alleged that Amaral had been sexually abusing him. The boy's mother then telephoned a child abuse hotline to report that her son had been sexually abused and Amaral was arrested soon thereafter. As a result of the 1986 trial, Emerald was convicted of assaulting and raping nine children and sentenced to 30 to 40 years in state prison. Oh, man. In a separate trial, his mother, Violet Emerald, and, and sister, Cheryl Emerald Lefebvre, were also convicted of similar charges and sentenced to jail for 8 to 20 years. According to Richard Beck, the case developed in the usual way compared to other moral panic cases, with more and more children making increasingly bizarre allegations against the accused during the course of the investigation. The allegations included reports of bad clowns, robots, magic rooms, and animals being tortured. According to Beck, one of the prosecutors responsible for the case commented that coaxing allegations out of the children had been like getting blood from a stone. During 1995, the Wall Street Journal journalist Dorothy Ravanowitz questioned testimony from the children that had been elicited with dubious inter interrogation techniques and wrote, 
No sane person reading the transcripts of these interrogations can doubt the wholesale fabrications of evidence on which this case was built. So Miss Rabanowitz was just calling them out. <laughs> Rabanowitz was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for her newspaper columns on the issue and made the Emerald's case a centerpiece of her book, No Crueler Tyrannies, Accusation, False Witness, and Other Terrors of Our Times. Violet and Cheryl were granted a new trial in 1997 on the basis that they had been denied the right to face their accusers and had been represented inadequately at trial, but Violet died and had just reduced Cheryl's sentence to time served before the new trial could proceed. During 2001, the Massachusetts Board of Pardons recommended that Gerald's sentence be commuted, citing substantial doubt about his guilt. He was granted parole in 2003. Writing about the case at the time of Gerald's release, the magazine The Economist suggested in an editorial that while the Emeralds had long maintained their innocence and had attracted a string of prominent supporters who believed that they had been convicted wrongly, many others continued to believe that Mr. Emerald committed the crimes. Oh, that's a... Uh, it I gets th- sticky. Yeah. I just can't imagine... I know, and oh, especially man. looking at hindsight, now that we know that all these cases were not true, that's just so scary for the defendants. The next case, Bernard Baran. That's kind of hard to say. <laughs> On October 4th, 1984, a drug-addicted couple telephoned their contact within the police department of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and accused Bernard Baran of molesting their son. Been attending the government-operated Early Childhood Development Center where Baran, an openly homosexual 19-year-old, worked as a teacher's aide. I don't already like where this is going. (laughs) Gary suspect there's a lot of homophobia going on here. The accusers had complained previously to the board of directors that they didn't want no homo around their son. Within days of the first allegation, ECDC hosted a puppet show and delivered letters to parents notifying them about a child at the daycare center who had gonorrhea. Five other allegations were made. He was sentenced to three life terms plus 8 to 20 years on each charge. Baran maintained his innocence throughout his case, and in 1999, a new legal term accepted his case. In 2004, hearings began in a motion for a new trial, and in 2006, Baran was granted a new trial. He was released on a $50,000 bail. In May 2009, the Massachusetts Appeals Court affirmed the new trial ruling setting aside the 1985 convictions. The Berkshire County District Attorney's Office dismissed the original charges and Baron's record was cleared. So he was 19 at the time when this happened, right? And so he didn't really get cleared to 2004. So that, oh, that's so terrible. So 16, 20 years. That's fucked. No, to, even 2009. 2009 is when they finally dismissed it. 2004 is when they accepted the new trial. That almost, uh, this poor man, almost half of his life spent in prison. And, oh, that, that's so terrible. Right. For something that he did not do. What they, it sounds like they kind of framed him for. Just, what was he guilty of? being gay mm-hmm. and so uh and there's so much history behind that where right. uh, people in the lgbt community get stigmatized with so mm-hmm. many different things that uh, i each time i'm reading some of these stories I, i'm still left speechless i can't believe this is happening to people how traumatic is this man Mm. Yeah, and then the reason why, I, I mean, there's so many more cases, and shout out to Wikipedia for doing an amazing job summarizing all of this to process it, but, um, I mean, I only picked four or five significant cases out of, like, I think he had, they had 15 out there with more information. Yeah, there's so there's so much more. And it literally, like, started from the 1980-something to going down. Like, it was almost every year there was a huge case going on. So it just spread like wildfire. Yeah, the pattern is just essentially the same. The coerced interviewing. A lot of the primary accusers, it sounds like, was against the male daycare workers. And then, obviously, the women that were part of, you know, the daycare business was also being accused, but... And I'm curious as far as, like, the child with gonorrhea, like, if they ever got to the bottom of that, and it makes me curious if any other caregivers in that child's life had anything to do with that, aside from this innocent man. Exactly. I was like, did you even test the accused? And now that we know, it's not so much stranger danger, it is the the perpetrators are a lot of times people that we know people that are in the family people are close to the victims well and then we have the international spread 
1987, a list of indicators, quote-unquote, was published by Catherine Gold, featuring a broad array of vague symptoms that were ultimately common, non-specific, and subjective purported to be capable of diagnosing SRA in most young children. I even feel weird saying that in my house because, you know, it, it never crosses my mind. <laughs> And I just saw The Conjuring 3, you guys, so <laughs> I'm a little bit on my toes. <laughs> okay, so by the late 1980s, allegations began to appear throughout the world, including Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia. In part enabled by English as a common international language and in the UK, assisted by Gold's list of indicators. Belief in SRA spread rapidly through the ranks of mental health professionals despite an absence of evidence. Through a variety of continuing education seminars, gotta get those CEUs, <laughs> during which attendees were urged to believe in the reality of satanic cults, their victims, and not to question the extreme and bizarre memories uncovered. Proof was provided in the form of unconnected bits of imp information such as pictures drawn by patients, heavy metal album covers, historic folklore about devil worshippers, and pictures of mutilated animals. During the seminars, patients provided testimonials of their experiences and presenters stressed their recovering memories was important for the healing. Uh, I don't know about that. You know, because in EMDR, that's why they don't even call them memories. They call them targets. Because it's not so much that the memory that you remember, it's it's what's meaningful about it. The sensation, the image. And so uh, this this is wild. Yeah, like what comes up for you in your, in your body and in your mind, right? Because you want right. to process that out rather than what mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And even if we do know some signs of certain things... We explore with the patient. We just don't, from the get-go, say, yeah, I believe you were sexually abused. It takes some exploration, and you definitely got to process with the patient, but I'd be interested to see what this SRA is all about. <laughs> oh, I know. We need to... What really is such a catch-22, because you could see that these folks are trying to do right by the patients and helping them heal, but it's done in just such a... I don't know what the word is. It, it's, it's just doing so much more harm harm then to make it this huge satanic ritual so then if somebody was truly sexually abused oh well you know satan wasn't involved i didn't see it wasn't this huge experience so maybe it's not abuse because it was just by someone normal this is so wild and i feel like every story gets even more wild so then you have cleveland england child mm -hmm. abuse scandal so, in the years prior to the scandal, levels of reported child abuse in the Cleveland area were consistent with those of other parts of the UK. But in 1987, during the period of February to July, many children living in Cleveland were removed from their homes by social service agencies and diagnosed as sexually abused. The 121 diagnoses were made by two pediatricians at a Middlesbrough hospital, Marietta Higgs and Jeffrey Wyatt, using the later discredited diagnostic of reflex anal dilation. So what does that mean? What does this test mean? Just looking at it, it sounds like it's literally just like their anus having a reaction, like a muscle movement. Yes, I, did it. you hear my clicking? <laughs> so it's, Let me know. Is the reflexive dilation of the human anus to a diameter greater than two centimeters in response to the parting of the buttocks or anal area? So who wouldn't have that reflex? Especially, like, children. Right! That is a normal bodily reflex. If you're literally spreading their butt apart. Stupid! <laughs> that is so And that's just such stupid. a strange, like, measure. Y'all. This it's is 87. It's almost like the, like the hymen test. Like, to see if somebody still has purity and virginity. Yes. Like, that's not accurate. Right. If anything, you're just traumatizing these kids with this, and, with this procedure. Oh, my God. Seriously. And again, sexual abuse is in different forms. So what if there wasn't anything involved with their anus? Then it's not sexual abuse. That's stupid. Y'all are dumb. Seriously. So now that we know what that is and that we're not in agreement with it, <laughs> when there were not enough foster yeah. homes in which to place the allegedly abused children, social services began to house the children in a ward at the local hospital. And so that's very interesting Jesus. that they had like this phenomena in that specific area with sexual abuse. And I wonder what mm -hmm. kind of efforts they did to kind of 
see any similarities within the families or, or anything like that. I feel like there's some there's some social work yeah. missing here. <laughs> so later, the test being used to establish child abuse was contested by the area police surgeon in cooperation between the social workers, police, and hospital doctors involved in a diagnosis began to disintegrate. Good. Because what were we thinking? Good job. I bet you, <laughs> I want to hear that, that police surgeon, he's like, uh, it's a fucking butthole, guys. Like, what do you expect it to do? It's a muscle. Like, you and fucking you know, I, I start thinking of the culture of humility piece, too. Because maybe this is not, like, a practice in the UK. Or I guess this is where this is at, right? But in some cultures, when babies are constipated, the caregivers will stimulate the rear area of the child with, like, a thermometer mm-hmm. or something in order yeah. to help them relieve themselves. There's just so much more to it. Oh, that's a good point. So maybe that was... A practice. It's a good point. And that's actually something that I see a lot that is being recommended for new parents. I've done that with my children when they're babies, when they had a hard time. Now that it's like, you know, we have the internet and that's like more normalized. And now that I'm thinking too, is that with this being in the UK, where a lot of societies like mental health and that type of stuff is still very taboo but like but then when you have these pediatricians talking about a very specific thing they're just let's just do the test and like press on so we don't have to like acknowledge anything else what in the freud are we doing here (laughs) (laughs) i blame freud it's good for the police surgeon at that time that he was now (laughs) so in addition there was public concern regarding the practices being used by the local social services agency such as the removal of children from their homes in the middle of the night. Whole another traumatic situation, not only for the child, but for the family involved. And can you imagine what kind of shock to this, literally to the system, we're not just talking about the family and the child, but the community altogether of children being removed. And so, uh, oh man, this is getting real, real sticky. In May 1987, parents marched from the hospital where their children were being held to the local newspaper. The resulting media coverage caused the social service agency's practices to receive public scrutiny and criticism. In response, the Butler's Loss Report was commissioned by the Secretary of State for Social Services in July 1987 and published in 1988. And so that's kind of like, you know, when you got to do a review by any like mm-hmm. system or agency, that's them saying, we got a problem. Yeah. The report was led by Elizabeth Butler Sloss, and it concluded that most of the diagnoses were incorrect, to much surprise of the police surgeon, right? Yeah. As a result, 94 of the 121 children were returned to their homes. An editorial in The Lancet concluded, The kindest description of Dr. Marietta Higgs and Dr. Jeffrey Wyatt would be to say that they were naive, but naivety should not number among a consultant pediatrician's characteristics. By their bullheaded approach, Dr. Higgs and Dr. Wyatt have set back the cause they sought to promote. In July 1988, six MPs tabled a House of Commons motion for charges of indecent assault and conspiracy to brought against Higgs and Wyatt on October 14, 1991. The Children Act... Man, they, they got serious. I was about to say, I was wondering, as I was reading this, I was, these doctors ever get charged with, I don't know, inappropriate practice or malpractice or anything like that? Right. The Children Act of 1989 was implemented in full as a result of the Cleveland child abuse scandals and other child-related events that preceded it. So I'm really curious about that other child-related events that preceded it. But I guess that's another that's another dive another day. <laughs> I know, right? I looked real quickly. The Child Act of 1989 is essentially the act of or the law saying that they cannot pull the kids out immediately to protect any integrity of the family that it has to meet criteria for immediate like safety concerns and stuff like that. They noticed that these two doctors didn't know shit. I'm glad they called that out. But yeah, after how many like over 120 something families were impacted just because you thought you knew something i would sue my ass off so here is another one that i was just about to say like i wonder if dr hicks and dr wyatt have any material out there that maybe they were kind of being fed some of this satanist like media frenzy they went to that ceu (laughs) (laughs) that ceu oh yeah that's right that's right Sorry, I, I just read this, and I guess I'm still stuck on the part of uh, these methods that they used. 
So that's how they filtered this into their their practice. Yeah, their practice. Yeah, I want, and I think that like international spread part. If you look, it's a lot of the English speaking countries because of that commonality of language. So they learned this child abuse phenomenon that's happening. So now you have that very like evidence bias that you're looking for specific things to prove as evidence, and then they find some like, oh, this happens when you're. But <laughs> that's fucking crazy, dude. I I can't. So, anyways, so not anyways. I'm so sorry that happened to the families. I'm just we we laugh because we're so taken back by just the fucking craziness of of these cases and and, and information that we I would have never known unless I was like, hey, let's do a deep dive for our podcast. So thank you for listening. Another case that that involves a doctor's miss calculations and diagnosis involves Neo saying no. She's silently yelling no. <laughs> so this is Oak Hill Satanic Ritual Abuse Allegedly Trial. Frances Keller and her husband Dan Keller, both of Austin, Texas, were convicted of sexually abusing a three-year-old girl in their care and sentenced to 48 years in prison, which is great, right? If it was true sexual abuse, like yay justice. They spent 21 years in prison until their release in 2005. 13 what this is guys 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 all right the case began on august 15 1991 when a three-year-old girl told her mother that dan keller had spanked her probably did spank her because spanking back then was allowed and another cultural shift however allegation quickly morphed into an allegation of sexual abuse and let me tell you how it fucking warped to this And guys, whatever I read now, do not take that as a sign to not do therapy on behalf of Mao and Nao and all the other therapists. This is not a true depiction of therapy. And we don't claim this therapist. Mother and daughter were on their way to a scheduled appointment with the girl's therapist, Donna David Campbell. Catch me outside. Yes, to my bitch. (laughs) Who (laughs) Who elicited details that included Keller defecating on this child's head and sexually assaulting her with a pen what the fuck what the fuck how does this go from spanking to this this girl is three years old remember that three years old so you have to imagine based on what we've already learned on how people are asking very coercive questions and then this poor three-year-old child is just like yes yes and then she probably saw a pen was like a pen you know like what the so during the time leading up to the trial two other children from the daycare offered similar accusations according to the children this the couple served blood laced kool-aid and forced them to have videotaped sex with adults and other children the Kellers, they said, sometimes wore white robes and lit candles before hurting them. The children also accused the Kellers of forcing them to watch or participate with the killing and dismemberment of cats, dogs, and a crying baby. Like, this is so far-fetched. Fucking terrifying. But I don't like, think that's this happening. Ain't, this ain't Angels and Demons by Dan Brown. Like... Right? Yeah. I'm sorry. This is the Da Vinci Code or whatever. Or Stephen King, is that you? Like, what the fuck? Bodies were unearthed in cemeteries and new holes dug to hide freshly killed animals. And once an adult passerby was shot and dismembered by a chainsaw. This is what was being reported by these children. The children recalled several airplane flights, including one to Mexico, where they were sexually abused by soldiers before returning to Austin in time to meet their parents at the daycare. So all of this happened in a span of, what, eight, nine hours? Are you fucking serious? The only physical evidence of abuse in the case was presented by Michael Moo, a then-novice emergency room doctor at Breckenridge Hospital. Let me say that again. He was a then-novice ER doctor who examined the three-year-old girl in 1991. On the night that she first accused Dan Keller of abuse, Moo testified that i'm sorry he was the one that examined her on the first night she accused dan moo testified at the keller's trial that he found deformities described as possible lacerations to the hymen and the tear of the forchette so the forchette is essentially the space between like your anus and the vagina right so it's like that little area so he said that there was some tearing in that area that constituted what he considered of possible signs of sexual abuse his determination then was also confirmed by her pediatrician, Beth Newert, 
who agreed at the time that the child had deformities to her vagina area that could be signs. However, Newart would notably examine the child two weeks after Moo and found that there were no signs of that deformities. Three years after the 92 trial, Moo attended a medical seminar hosted by Newart that detailed normal variations of the female genitalia. In a slide presentation, Moo stated that the presentation included a photo that was identical to what he saw in the three-year-old. So in 2009, Moo issued a reversal on his prior claims after being contacted by the Austin Chronicle as part of their story titled Believing the Children that covered the Keller's case. The doctor stated that his erroneous medical testimony was caused by his little experience, if any formal experience at all, in conducting sexual abuse examinations of children. On June 20th, 2017, the Travis County District Attorney's Office announced that the case against the Kellers had been dismissed, citing actual innocence. They are awarded $3.4 million in compensation from the state of Texas for 21 years in prison for being child abusers, molesters. I mean, I'm surprised they were even still alive. Like, you know people that are accused of that. So, I will say this doctor at least owned up to it, but he didn't own up to it until the Austin Chronicle called his ass and was like, hey, uh, so about this bullshit diagnosis, because clearly you don't know fucking vaginas and genitalia. And I think that also speaks to how in such very sensitive and specialized areas like that, the importance of training and experience Mm -hmm. and mentorship, everything that makes us professionals and so important especially because like you're right it wasn't until like the chronicle like contacted him but uh, yeah I, I think he had a point there sometimes in, in you're young in your career you don't get taught about a lot of things and so you uh mm-hmm. you operate with what you know right which is not an excuse not at all because right. obviously somebody went to prison no. for this for a very long time the whole story is just wild though because essentially they had they gone to a foreign country like that's that's human trafficking they they traffic like mm-hmm. these kids and normally mm-hmm. when you're trafficking you you're found within a much larger ring i mean i'm not a criminologist or law enforcement official right. But from the stuff that we kind of dedicate our free time to to kind of explore and learn about yeah. <laughs> um you're part of something bigger and you you just don't do it one time let me test it out isolated uh, right yeah you just keep getting more and more and you can't stop man that's just and bodies were unearthed in cemeteries i don't think that was a founded claim but and also now that we know that you know usually in result of any type of abuse there's a lot of mental and physical distress right in the body and in the mind and none of these kids had any outward external signs that people were were seeing that made them question it a lot of it was yeah this kiddo girl got spanked and then and then that's scary like for me I'm like okay like my three-year-old maybe the spanking was allowed back then by other daycares or maybe it wasn't so the the mom you know did the right thing and was like hey let's go to a therapist and talk about it you know because you assume this professional knows how to work through something like that and process it but because this widespread phenomena of this moral panic and you know this like oh my god let me test for sexual abuse immediately So it's interesting to hear where where a lot of this stuff came from. I wanted to really pinpoint those two cases that involve doctors because I think that type of misdiagnosis and lack of information obviously does so much harm. And now in the States at least, and I imagine maybe in, in other countries within the hospital healthcare system there are advocates or not within but like when i worked in boston an emergency department the the city of boston had a um advocacy nonprofit group for sexual abuse survivors they were advocates so we would call the hotline and they would actually bring out an advocate to sit with the sexual abuse survivor at any any stage of their even if they weren't reporting but they would sit with them in the hospital and make sure that they were advocating appropriately to the healthcare professionals because you know you don't know what to ask you don't know what you don't know so these advocates would make sure like that they would properly consent to this and that they weren't being dismissed and they would explain the whole process so i think that's a step in the right direction oh man so 
The next one we have here is the Wenatchee, Wenatchee Child Abuse Prosecutions. So in Wenatchee, Washington, during 1994 and 1995, police and state social workers performed what was then termed the nation's most extensive child abuse, child sex abuse investigation. 43 adults were arrested on 29,726 charges of child sex abuse involving 60 children. Oh, man. Holy fuck. And this was the 90s. Mid-90s. Jesus. Parents, Sunday school teachers, and a pastor were charged, and many were convicted of abusing their own children or the children of others in the community. However, prosecutors were unable to provide any physical evidence of the charges. Huh. Huh. You, you know. Yeah. After all these other cases that we heard, we were hoping that, that in fact, that there was not. What? The main witness was the 13-year-old foster daughter of police officer Robert Bettis, who had investigated the cases. A jury found the city of Wenatchee and Douglas County, Washington, negligent in the 1994 through 1995 investigations. In 2001, $3 million was awarded to a couple who had been accused wrongly as a result of the inquiry. Oh, man. So 29,726 charges of child sex abuse involving 60 children. Yeah. But, but let's go back to who the main witness was. A 13-year-old child of the investigating police officer how's that hold up in court and obviously i don't think much of it did right no it didn't because they were only charged meaning that like the police were able to like book them and but they had to go to trial because they were charged it shouldn't even gotten that far to be honest like what the fuck seriously that's a And and as soon as i read that i was like the daughter of the police officer who was investigating the cases? What? Huh. (laughs) Yeah. So, I'm glad the jury was able to look at it objectively. So, after reading all those terrible cases, so the folks that were skipping those cases can come back now. (laughs) Um right now so how the hell did we get here let's talk about false memories um children's magical thinking stage and professionals making shit up pretty much so let's start off with the professionals making shit up (sighs) you guys a book was written in the form of an autobiography presenting the first modern claim that child abuse was linked to satanic rituals and responsible for coining the term ritual abuse this book is called Michelle Remembers, co-written by a Canadian psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazder, and his psychiatric patient and eventual wife. Let me say that again. It was his client, patient, and then he married her. That's in the Code of Ethics. Look at her. Michelle Smith. <laughs> you don't do it. Ever. Ever. Don't fucking do it. This book was a bestseller, relying on the discredited practice of recovered memory therapy to make sweeping lurid claims about satanic ritual abuse involving Smith that contributed to the rise of the satanic ritual abuse moral panic in the 1980s. While the book presents its claim as fact, it was essentially marketed on the basis at the time. No evidence was provided. All investigations into the book failed to corroborate any of its claims, with investigators describing its content as being primarily based on elements of pop culture and fiction that were popular at the time when it was written. Long story short, this psychiatrist wrote a book claiming to be an autobiography based on what was popular which was the satanic panic which then created he also used his patient as the fucking main character of this saying that she experienced all that and then this book became just evidence and facts to this whole subsequent era of satanic panic because this was this was written in the early 80s I hate him so much. Although the investigators found that none of this was true, it did not stop it from being used as a model for numerous allegations of 
satanic ritual abuse that later ensued in the same decade that we had already just talked about. On the basis of the book's success, Hasder developed a high media profile, giving lectures and training on satanic ritual abuse to law enforcement. Yeah. And by September 90, he had acted as a consultant for more than a thousand satanic ritual abuse cases, including the McMartin preschool trial. I blame you, you son of a bitch. So prosecutors even use this book as a guide when they're preparing for trial. Just no, 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 no. I'm just trying to sound like that TikTok, but no, 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 no. Yeah, I was going to say no. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Probably like, don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Well, you're being hella sus with all of this. Like, what, what, what are we doing? I just can't. 1,000 SR cases. I think we're both like, this person had like a pretty big role in those because it says to yes, include them. Yes, because he had this book. I, you know, I, just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. I would want to read the book. Just out of like sheer curiosity. I was totally thinking, I was like, I wonder if I can find it. But I don't know how far I'd get into it because I'd be fucking pissed. That's okay. Now it. and they are going to start a book club now. We have the pod. Now we're going to do the book club. <laughs> We should. We should do a live and then read it. Like, read a chapter or two or something. Oh, my God. That's as far as we'll get. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'll just throw the book. Oh, my God. Yeah. We read the first two chapters, so y'all wouldn't have to. (laughs) Right. Yeah, we should look for the book. So, So that is one factor. And then just going into kind of the false memory syndrome, I found this through the website of the false memory syndrome foundation and they had a really nice frequently asked question so i just wanted to go a little more into what the information they were like they they help people kind of process through and deal with like oh shit i was a victim of false memory right so they wrote sometimes people call the foundation and ask us if their recovered memories are true which essentially means like historically accurate they respond saying that unfortunately they could never know what happened to other people many years ago. Again, without some independent external corroboration, no one can discern true from false memories. So when a caller asks this question, they generally urge them to consider how these memories came to them. So if repeated and suggestive questioning inappropriate group therapy practices, imagination exercises, or memory enhancement techniques such as hypnosis were involved, we caution callers that although they may believe that they are remembering more, no evidence supports using these techniques for uncovering historically reliable memories. And that hypnosis and sodium amaltol, or the truth serum, are especially unreliable for these purposes i think that makes it you know a good point of saying like hey like we can't say if it's true or not but what is the source of these memories is it something that you remember objectively experiencing or did this memory come from people questioning you about it or were you in a group therapy practice where you talk about it or essentially was there somebody like creating this narrative for you Although other memory work techniques have not been studied as systematically as hypnosis, cognitive psychologists have warned about techniques like guided imagery, relaxation exercises, trance writing, and stream-of-consciousness journaling. With these techniques, patients make no effort to apply critical and logical thought processes. In addition, they can induce a hypnotic state with its well-known risk of increased suggestibility. Scientists have also noted the risk of believing in dream interpretation. Dreams are not videotapes of events, thus interpretations, even if made by experts, are completely subjective and therefore dubious reliability. Those cognitive methods are great for the other type of therapy, not for memory recovery. (laughs) Um, So that's essentially what, what I'm pulling from that is that just because you think something like we know thoughts are not facts so same thing for memories our memories are not concrete recorded events and there are many times where i've definitely like thought oh this happened and then it didn't. like so memory does not work like a videotape recorder there is just no button to push or 
no pill to take that guarantee historically accurate memory out. Memory is constructive. That is, people take bits and fragments of recollections from the past and use them to reconstruct a narrative that makes sense to them in the here and now. Memory gaps get filled in with new information mixed with old, and it becomes impossible to separate the two. Again, the truth or falsity of a memory cannot be discerned in the absence of external corroboration. We quite literally make stories about our lives, the world, and reality in general. Often it is the story that creates the memory rather than vice versa, says Hasting Dawes, 2000. You know, on your Instagram reels, where they're like, oh, if you're thinking of this person or dreaming of them, they're manifesting you. <laughs> and no, that's that's probably more conscious versus subconscious things going on. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe. And I think it goes in kind of the superstitions too, right? It's kind of like that. It's so unknown. Like even there's not a lot of science really, I feel like, on memory because it's, it's a hard thing to study. Absolutely. I mean, I think to an extent you can believe it because I do think that sometimes family members that have gone to like, uh, have already passed away, sometimes they do. I, I really do believe that they visit us in our dreams sometime and um, definitely, um uh, I guess it's just kind of such a very complex, a lot of gray area <laughs> when it comes to this. Um, and then it, it, it makes it makes it kind of s- sad sometimes because then people sometimes they, they doubt what they feel they remember or they don't feel validated because nobody else was there to kind of say like, hey, did this, they did, this did happen to you. So, um, man, it's just a very complex field. <laughs> and they're like, I don't have evidence. It is, it is. And, you know, and and that's a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Like, I don't want this discussion piece of memory to say, like, what you experienced didn't happen or that maybe your memory is false. You know, like, you know what you feel and go from there. I think the piece that I really got out of this research is specifically mainly to the satanic bullshit is that it was all planted essentially and not i don't think with ill intent i think there was a lot of societal pieces during that time that created again that moral panic of you know satanism's coming out the paganism moms are going back to work so now the society is shifting in their progressiveness of like oh women do more than just stay at home but then there's like innate shameful bullshit that comes of like oh but now you're gonna have these strangers watch your kid and then you have the guilt from parents and and you're like again expecting the worst to happen and then it does and then it just fucking catches like wildfire and we've studied cases that happened in the 70s of like awful serial killers and crazy stuff that happens and how like the children of the 70s are like running wild because nobody cared so it's kind of like this huge shift on the other spectrum of like we do care about children we have to believe our children but then at the cost of who now you know innocent people so yeah that's just an intense thing with all this being said the underpinnings for the contemporary moral panic were found in a rise of five factors in the years leading up to the 1980s so let's start with the establishment of the fundamentalist christianity and the founding and political activism of the religious organization which was named the moral majority and this is not to this is not us like trying to call out any specific religion or, or nothing like that. But like with any movement or with any phenomena, organization, what, whatever you want to call it, sometimes, uh, like Mal was saying, like we're on a spectrum. Some of these ideologies are kind of taking to the extreme, right? And so with with like for example, with my upbringing, upbringing, I was I was Catholic. I, I am I still identify to a degree as Catholic. But after I had a real chance to study it and kind of take what I wanted out of it, do I uphold a lot of the gender roles that they want me to have? Probably not. <laughs> so, you know, that's just one example as far as like how at that time with women going back to work and not really being homemakers, they kind of felt like the nuclear family was kind of like at risk of, of a demise or something. 
So then you have the rise of the anti-cult movement, which accused abusive uh, cults of kidnapping and brainwashing children and teens. You have the appearance of the Church of Satan and other explicitly Satanist groups, which added a kernel of truth to the existence of satanic cults. And so, like I said, we're not here to judge any religion or faith or any spiritual groups. Um, There's obviously very differing beliefs, but you have kind of like the framing and the... And kind of like the perception that's built around any group really might fire certain stereotypes or beliefs that we're really not really knowledgeable of. And so we're, it's kind of feeding into the fears more so. Um, you have the development of the social work or child protection field and its struggle to have child sexual abuse recognized as a social problem. And really recognizes it similar to domestic violence, kind of like a public health problem too. Because you have all these primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention strategies that need to be implemented, one of them being how to develop proper forensic tools and training for individuals to really identify and not put children at a, at a vulnerable stage that they already are in. You put them at risk of wanting to, like, please that adult at that time with the answers that they want to hear. And so it's just not right. So with all these factors just combined all together, I think... We could say that um, if this were to happen again, we know what methods not to use. <laughs> and um, and kind of a little bit of the, the science behind memories and um, how therapy and really psychotherapists and, and professionals all together have an important role of how to help or not help, but really support somebody of kind of exploring this process and not leading them or, or coaching them or guiding them in that sense yeah and i find as we talk about it and process it that a lot of the procedures and quote-unquote evidence in science is reactive they did it and they're like oh this is the outcome i got what i wanted essentially i got the evidence that i wanted so it for sure works so rather than putting in procedures of one how do we prevent that type of abuse but also proper signs of abuse because they act like it was like they've never i don't know they just <laughs> i don't know <laughs> and i can't yeah i cannot imagine being a social worker back then but also i think an important fact i don't know the numbers but the history of the child protection field is wild it's and i think it plays into how badly this was handled because a lot of these child protective social workers quote unquote were not in the human service psychology field prior at all again the cps dss field was created reactively to these increasing numbers of child abuse so that's a whole nother episode that we will i'm sure do yeah most definitely there's a lot of history behind it and now you kind of see like some of this ever lasting effects and impacts of kind of um i don't want to call it trial and error but kind of because nobody really knew how to address some of these some of these problems that were coming up on the field right oh man so if y'all thought we were gonna just (laughs) pull out our ouija board and talk about saying no we did not (laughs) we went over some very serious and again i think in our crowd just looking at our kind of analytics and reports like our crowd is our age and even younger so i feel like a lot of this stuff we were not aware of because we were literally babies at that time or not even born and then to our um, listeners that were around and remember the satanic panic please write in we would love to hear like what your perception and what your thoughts were of this craziness and i'm so sorry and i'm glad that you survived it because that is a terrifying time i think a lot of the stuff that we're doing is just exploring things that happened around us that really has trickled to how society and the systems around us are still working. So I feel like it helps make some sense to navigate this this world. So yeah, so that's all we have for the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s. And um, again, write to us. Let us know. You have direct links to our Instagram and to our email in the show notes. 
I love connecting with people. So let me know what your thoughts are and anything you want to hear. Yeah, be sure to share the podcast with your friends, families, enemies. That's fine. Whoever you want to share with. (laughs) And if it's not too much to ask, head over to Apple Podcasts and review and give us a star. I mean, not just one star. Five would be preferable, but do you? It's fine. <laughs> I still appreciate love to you. the homies. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I want to end this again with, hmm, what, what is something that you've been, like, kind of nostalgic about? You're going to laugh. I think MySpace. <laughs> I was just telling my uh, my partner the other day that um, we were driving, we went on a road trip, and um, but th- there was like a radio station that was playing on kind of like this grungy, like pop feel, kind of punk rock music that you kind of hear at coffee shops where you visit like a new city you've never been to. And I, I was telling him, man, this, this, this song is really good. And if I still had MySpace, I could have coded like a background like that was raining in the back. <laughs> And included all these like life quotes that at sixteen I somehow knew had so much meaning. Like, <laughs> yes. I don't even know who the band was on the radio, but I was thinking like, yeah, my MySpace profile oh, okay. would have looked so put together if I had this song. Uh, yeah, dude, I'm not gonna lie. I like legit think about MySpace at least once a month. <laughs> yeah, like your top friends. The other day, my sister, well, not like the other day, but like two months ago, she made a, she told me, she was like, I'm still kind of bitter <laughs> that I wasn't your number one on your top oh. friends. <laughs> so she totally called me out. And this was like in 2009. Like, <laughs> like, ma'am, I don't even know if we're still friends on MySpace, you and I. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I know. You're like, I don't even know if my fucking profile is still there. That's so funny. So I was in high school when MySpace was starting to be created. Like, it was still... No, 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 sorry. Was MySpace around? No, 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 it was definitely around in... in, uh... So MySpace came about, I think, what, like early 2000s? And I had Asian Avenue, (laughs) which I was not good at at all because i know there was like was it like mi gente and then there was black planet and then there's then there was uh asian avenue and then i think myspace came a little after that so it was like very racially (laughs) segregated um but then like you still had people that were like different races in them (laughs) so so my friend made an asian avenue page for me and it was literally like she would code everything for me because i didn't know how to do it like she just put pictures so it was pretty much her page i've never heard of this (laughs) and um (laughs) i probably was not even on the internet on (laughs) at that time (laughs) So I do remember having like the yeah I mean I I've had all the those like web like what are you, whatever you call it those web pages but I miss I actually what I think about almost every day is my AIM hey. profile like instant messaging that was so fun and like and it's so cute because the military still has it in the IMing through the Outlook so it, like it's a nice little nostalgia but yeah no I loved having AIM because it was like super easy like I'd be like on chat rooms and then like chatting my friend on the AIM thing and then. Oh, and then the little quote that sometimes you would make, like, a song lyric. And, yeah, your box, like, your away box. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, jump on it right after school, yeah. Yeah. Those those were the days, much simpler days. I know, but, I mean, maybe maybe change is good, because, you know, we're not having so much satanic panic now, so. (laughs) That, this is true, this is true. Yay. (laughs) So, again, thanks for hanging out with us. Hit us up on Instagram, on the email. I think that's all we have. <laughs> and review us. Please share. We love you. Thanks for joining us again in our season two. Let us know t- t- whatever stuff you want to hear. We're open to it and I'm sure we'll get to it. And be sure to stay tuned for next week. We'll have something fun and probably terrifying for you guys. <laughs> so much love to the homies. Bye. Till next time. Peace. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and be sure to come back next week where we continue to explore true crime. 
psychology, the paranormal, mental health, and everything in between. We would love to hear from you, so email us at millennialtherapistspod at gmail.com with your ghost stories, paranormal experiences, questions about therapy and counseling, or the social work field. And don't forget to share, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember, you are valued, you are enough, and you are not alone. Please subscribe and review. Bye-bye. Although we are licensed mental health therapists and may cover therapy-related subjects, the topics in this podcast should not substitute professional, psychological, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you are a victim of a crime which includes but not limited to stalking, human trafficking, financial crimes, or sexual assault, please know the Victim Connect Resource Center can help. They are a referral helpline where crime victims can learn about their rights and options confidentially and compassionately. A traditional telephone-based helpline is 1-855-4-VICTIM or 1-855-4-842846. Or you can connect with them at chat.victimconnect.org or at the website victimconnect.org. If you or someone you know is in crisis, whether they are considering suicide or not, please call the toll-free lifeline available 24-7 across the United States by calling one 800 273 8255 or visit suicide You as in Canadian listeners can also text home to 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. UK listeners text home to 85258 and Ireland listeners text home to 50808. For more mental health resources and support, international listeners can visit the website unitedgmh.org slash mental-health-support to find more mental health services and resources. And if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, connect with the Veteran Crisis Line to reach caring, qualified responders with the Department of Veterans Affairs at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or text 838-255. Or you can always visit veteranscrisisline.net. If you or anyone you know may be experiencing domestic violence, you can find resources and support with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Visit thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233.